Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 11th, 2021. This is episode 2839 of the Survival Podcast. And it's going to be a Just Jack show. We're going to take a, a subject and we're going to break it down. And we've talked about this theme before, but I'm going to come at it in a totally different way. Today's show is called Why Those in Power Have No Interest in Real Environmental Solutions. And again, like I said, I've, I've hit on this before. I don't think I've ever dedicated a show to really driving home why I believe this is the case. And, and I'm going to start out with a statement that's true and it's good business advice until it's done on a global level at a point where if you actually fix it, you break it. And that phrase is, problems are profitable. Problems are profitable. When you find a problem, you find an opportunity. If you can solve that problem, you can profit from it. Now, you can profit from it a lot of ways, maybe with money, maybe with goodwill and social capital. Maybe just by seeing the results of your efforts. But one way or another, we profit most significantly from problems. So if you think about everything that's become a major contributor to quality of life, it came from a point of, hey, here's the problem. Let's figure out how to solve it. If I wanted to talk to my friend and my friend lived far away, Then if I had something like a phone, I could talk to my friend. And, and the telecom industry is one of the most profitable in the world, right? You see how that works. It's, it's a pretty simple thing. Wherever there was a problem, the solution became a profitable solution. But what happens when you grow an industry off of a problem that you claim to solve But solving the problem actually destroys the industry, and that industry becomes worth, I don't know, a billion, a half a trillion, or multi-trillions of dollars, where we literally have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands or even millions of people employed in that industry. Can that industry ever be expected to now solve the problem that they claim to have a solution for? Or do we get into a point where what we need, what we got to have, is the problem sustained so we actually come into a sustainable problem instead of a sustainable solution I mean if we actually solve the problem for instance of affordable housing and people could afford housing and from a standpoint of by building houses that had longevity what does that do to the housing market any idea how big that market is? And we're going to go through a lot of different markets today. We're going to talk about this. But what got me on this in the first place is a video. I saw this a long time ago, but I put it out on my Odyssey channel today. It's from Jeff Lawton. And a long time ago, Jeff Lawton did four DVDs. He did one on soils. He did one on urban permaculture. He did one that was an introduction to permaculture in general. And he did one on food forests. And on the food forest DVD, he had these like outtakes, you know, bonus content at the end of the DVDs. And they were, three of them were examinations of food forests at different ages. One was a 30 year old food forest. One was a 300 year old food forest. And one was a 2000 year old food forest. 
I'm going to release the 2,000-year-old food forest one tomorrow. I released the 300-year-old food forest one this morning. If you're on my Telegram or social media, you may have seen it already. If not, there's a link in the notes today. It'll go out in the daily email, etc. Um, but he was in Vietnam. And you know he's doing his document documentaries and stuff like that in research and, and, and learning about local indigenous cultures and, and methods. And they were almost done. And he was asked by kind of, you know, their guide, is there anything else that you want to see before we wrap up? And he said he loves old suburbs. Because old suburbs where people have lived a long time, especially in cultures like this, have all these unique little gems and these little solutions. So he asked if maybe he could go to an old suburb and see how people were living there that were producing their own food and the plants that they used and things like that. And a lot of languages do not translate exactly. And that's what happened here. And he ended up taken to this little family compound, little under two acres, so not huge, and seeing how these people lived. And they literally produced almost everything that they needed on a daily basis on their land. Trees, herbs, vegetables, bees, livestock, everything on just two acres. And as he's looking around, he had never, and this is, again, one of the top, if not the top permaculture designers in the world, been all over the world, from the third world to the first and back again, right? And he realized he had never quite seen anything disintegrated before. So he said, well, how long has this been here? And I think it was like 23 or 26 generations. One way or another, it ended up to be 300 years. The same family lived on this piece of land. And not only did they make it produce everything they needed, by this point, they literally became integrated as part of the system. They were doing almost no work, as we think of it, and just maintaining this. By their action of taking what they need as they needed it and doing a few little things in there, here and there, maintained it to where they had literally almost merged with this landscape. And in this video, Jeff has a hard time getting his mind around the scale of establishment. Think about that. You're talking about a guy that's built probably more food forests than anybody else in the world. A guy that's toured almost every sustainable and regenerative system he can get to, and he can get to a lot of them. And he's like, I... And even by the end of it, he said, I really, he's been there twice now. And he said, I really still can't fully grasp the timeline of establishment here, how integrated this really is. And it was meant to be impactful, and it was. And it was meant to show you what we could be doing, and it does. However, it gave me a different takeaway. Why would the government, why would the technocrats, Why would the oligarchs, why would all of these people who speak about environmentalism more than any other issue, they use it as their main lead issue, everything's climate change this and environmentalism that, why would they want you to live that way? What good would it do for people that profit off of your labor and your effort and your life? What good would it give the predatory and parasitic class if average people lived this way? What good would it be for an industry that's been built upon a 40-hour week 
if people were to spend half their time seeing to their needs directly and therefore provided over half of what they needed from doing so, so they only needed to work half as much. I've talked about the problematic peasants of the past. And I've said some things about John Locke that I think people doubt, but if you research it, you'll find out it's true. The guy was an ass. right? For all the good that his work did, it also was built upon a predication of predatory behavior on the average individual. And it was like the basically the problematic peasants. And at the time, we were moving into an industrial society. And the industrialists, especially in Europe and in United Kingdom, Britain, right, had this real problem. They needed to move a massive amount of people out of the country into the cities to get them to work in their factories. Not because we wouldn't have enough stuff, but because they wanted to profit by making stuff. And we had nowhere near the type of automation that we do today, so you needed somebody, basically every machine needed a human. And if you wanted that human or that machine to run all day and all night, and now that we had lighting, we could do that, then we needed two to three humans per machine. And hence comes in the swing shift type work. And some of those machines could even be run by children, because they're just another form of labor. But they had a problem. And the problem was the peasants had small land holdings. And on those small land holdings, they had the audacity to do things like grow food. And they would grow enough food that they could sell enough food to pay for their needs that they couldn't see to through their activities. And then their activities provided everything else that they needed. And they had the audacity to do thing like, things like grow pigs on their farm. And, and Locke even makes a statement. I can't remember exactly who the letter was to or the correspondence was with. But basically, that you know, with a few pigs and, and, and being able to pick some apples out of some trees and make some cider and, and having half of the year to party, that it's very difficult to get these young peasants to leave their father's land. And what can we do to get this done? So now think about this. Think about how that, that just runs headlong into the concept of if we actually taught people to build sustainable long-term housing and to integrate natural systems onto their land and provide even half of what they need from that. And that would then compound generation to generation to generation to where it would be it would maybe maybe it's 20% in the first generation and and by the time that first generation is old and handing it off maybe it's 50 60%. But you get to a point where after generation upon generation, and you build up strong local economies, and Bill's land is, Bill, maybe Bill likes to work with bees, so he makes honey, and Tom doesn't because he doesn't like bees, but he likes honey. And you, or you, you know, somebody has more sun, or somebody has more shade, or somebody's on the north side, or the west side, or the east side of a hill. And even in small local areas, there's different places where there's different predispositions to do things. And success levels of doing things. So you've developed this really high level of, of individual on individual trade at a local level. What does this do to the modern industrialist? What does it do to the pharmaceutical industry? We're going to get into all this today. Before we do, real quick, I just want to uh, let you know about our two sponsors today. Sponsor today, number one today, is the Wealth Studying Podcast with John Pugliano. John is an amazing guy. I first met John, I didn't even remember it till he told me years later, it's how we first met, in Utah. I was doing a prepper expo, and John had been listening to the Survival Podcast. And 
This is really not about the wealth side of things. It's just the man. Because I think the man is as important as what the man does. So he was listening to me, and part of him felt, is this guy who he really says he is? Is, is he as genuine as he seems to come across? So he came, he met me, he shook my hand, he told me he was about to establish financial uh, financial advisory business, and he knew how I felt about financial advisors, but he was going to do a little bit differently. We talked for a couple minutes, and after he told me this, I did remember, but you know, years later when I heard from him, he started a podcast, he got involved with the community, I didn't remember this at all. But he said he did something that I didn't know he did. He walked about 25 feet from my booth, and he stood there for 30 minutes. And for 30 minutes, he watched me talk to people. It's close enough to hear the conversations. And his wife came and said, do you want to say anything else to me? He says, no, I'm ready to leave now. I got what I need. And he said he decided right then that what I taught was really who I was, and he wanted to work with me. If you want to work with him, and if you want to learn from him, check out his podcast, The Wealth Studying Podcast. And John's one of those guys that actually does things before he goes and does them for others. So he made sure he was a self-made millionaire through investing before he started managing money. Again, check it out today, the Wealth Studying Podcast with John Pugliano. Next up, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. Water is incredibly important. We're going to talk about it a little bit today. And the Berkey filtration system, to me, is the most cost-effective, simplistic, and fail-safe method of filtering your own water that you can get. And... It might cost a little more than some solutions going in, but over the life of the system, it is the cheapest way I know to make sure your water is safe to drink. And lots of people sell Berkey, so why get it from the Berkey guy? Well, who the hell else are you can get a Berkey system from? The non-Berkey guy? How about Jeff the Berkey guy, Gleason, who's sponsored this show now for nine years? He's an amazing man. You can find out more about him and, his, and all the other stuff he does in addition to the Berkey Systems at his website, directive21.com. That's the word directive followed by the numbers 2 and one com. All right, so let's start digging into this. And I just want to start out, let's go through and, and, and think about the story I gave you in the beginning about the 300-year-old food forest and what it would be like if for the next 20 years half of Americans set out on establishing something like that. Just, just that much. Not everybody, just half. And not everybody succeeded. Half tried and half succeeded. Half of the half. So a quarter of us... And how it will impact the things that we're about to go through. Because I'm going to give you my list of what I think are some of the biggest problems and challenges we have in society. And I want you to think about the good for people and the bad for them. I hate breaking things into us and them, but when it comes down to the majority of the world versus the people in power, it is us and them. It is us and them. So, let's start out with world hunger. And understand that World hunger is not just in the third world. There are places where the majority of people live day to day, damn near starving, and people die of starvation on a daily basis. There are places like that. But we have a problem with hunger in America. We have incredible poverty in this country. We have incredible wealth. And most people do okay. But we have a problem with hunger in two ways. We have children and adults that go to bed hungry and don't know if or what they will eat tomorrow. Straight up hunger the way you think of it. But we also have a society that largely is nutrient deficient and they, they might even be obese and at the same time their body is hungry for high quality nutrient 
and, and, and minerals and vitamins, etc. So that we actually have obese people that have some of their health problems are related to what would actually be starvation. It's just, it's not in the way that we generally use the word. So we have hungry people in the first world and in the third world who need anything to eat in some cases, but need higher quality food to eat in other situations. And from a permaculture perspective, I'd like you to just think about, we'll, we'll go through this when we start going through how it adversely affects industry. But what is your solution to this? What would be your solution? What would be the easiest solution to people being hungry? Would it be to have them in some way produce at least some of their own food? If we want a more stable world, we need more food closer to where people are so that people are less hungry. If you want to see a destabilized place, if you want to see a place that's not safe to be, show me a place that does not have food security, and I will show you a third world environment, even in the first world. Now, let's talk about another one that goes directly with agriculture, and it's topsoil loss. The United States, I've said this before, but I, I mean, I will keep saying it until people aren't surprised by it anymore, at least. The United States has one item that we export by tonnage that exceeds anything else that we export from our country. And we get no money for it. It's a net loss to us. It's called, it's topsoil. We send more topsoil away in wind and water erosion into our creeks and our streams and eventually into our lakes and rivers and oceans than we do anything else we export. We are losing topsoil at an alarming, alarming rate. And every time we plow a field, we lose more. Period. Every time we plow a field, we lose more of our topsoil. Every time we have a major rain event in an area without proper mitigation in place and repairing areas, etc., we put more topsoil into our oceans and our rivers and our streams. Every time. And this damages us because, number one, we need the soil to grow the food or to grow the plants that grow the other food, which are animals, and to sustain and support the natural ecosystems that support the wildlife we supposedly care about. That's one problem. The other problem is we are not supposed to have massive amounts of topsoil and its corresponding nutrient in our freshwater and eventually then in our saltwater systems, which causes things like algal blooms, uh, de deprives... Uh, local ecosystems of the oxygen that they need to, to function, and basically damages not just our terrestrial but our aquatic systems. What is your solution to this? If you listen to the show for any length of time, what, what types of solutions do you see here? We could, for a few billion dollars, really, call it a $100 billion even, completely stop all of the erosion of topsoil and dumping of topsoil and nutrient into the Mississippi River which creates a dead zone larger than some of our states in the Gulf of Mexico every year with nothing but pushing some dirt around. We could do it. We don't really have to take land away from anybody. We don't have to take land out of production. In fact, the systems that we would put in would be incredibly productive systems for perennial production and add to the food supply, but we won't do it. Okay. Let's look at desertification. There's a plant called mullein. I'll come back to the desert part in a second. There's a plant called mullein. And it's a plant that we can use as toilet paper. It's a really soft, great big leaf. In fact, people used to use it for toilet paper before toilet paper was common. It is not native to North America. And it's, it's useful for a lot of things. 
and it can grow almost anywhere. I mean, it will literally grow in the cracks of a parking lot. And when we first came to North America from Europe, eventually the Native Americans came up with a name for this plant that literally translated as white man's footprints. If you saw Mullen, you knew the white man had been there because it was so adaptable that our just our interaction with, with natural systems caused it to follow us as we moved across the continent. We should call the desert human footprints. There is natural desert ecosystems on this planet. There are places where it is a desert because that's what it is. And there is healthy desert and there is unhealthy desert. And everywhere we go, we have turned healthy desert into unhealthy desert. And we have turned non-desert into unhealthy desert. Because if it's not supposed to be a desert and you make it a desert, there's no way it's a healthy desert. We have literally spread desert climate across our country. What is your solution to this? What is your solution to this? And I'm not going to go deep into it yet. I just want you to start thinking about it. And how would, and what's the number one thing that causes desertification? Do you know? If you don't know, it's agriculture. It is agricultural activity that depletes topsoil, sends it down the rivers and streams, creates erosion, mines the earth itself to the point at which you cannot sustain agriculture anymore. So then humans abandon that location that has been completely deforested and made devoid of any productive plant life. And then you end up with desert. And we do that. And we keep doing that. How about chemicals in our food? I, how do you sit and say that you care about the environment while you spread an entire biocide cocktail on almost all the food that people eat? Because what happens is we start out with just a bit of fertilizer. We go in... We take a piece of land, we start to produce food on it, and eventually, because of the way we do things, its fertility goes into decline. So now the farmer needs to make a living, and there's a problem. So the solution to the problem is fertility. So a chemical company pours some acid on some rocks and does some extractions of some byproducts from fossil fuels and makes fertilizer, NPK, and says, here you go, Mr. Farmer, this is really cheap. It's really inexpensive. We made lots of it. You'll never run out. Why? Uh, but let's say even if you wouldn't, you just take this and put this on the ground and your, your crops will grow. So the farmer gets it, puts it on the soil, and the crops grow. Of course, he's been destroying the soil life web. That's why he doesn't have fertility now. Now he becomes dependent upon the fertilizer. Okay. As bad as that is, at least it's only fertilizer. Because I've said the nitrogen in NPK is the same molecule as the nitrogen in compost, and it is. Except we're only using it because the biological system that made it bioavailable to the plant is not there anymore. The, the, the fertilizer we're using is radioactive. Check that shit out and look it up if you doubt me. Uh, it has other heavy metals like cadmium with it. The soil begins to acidify. We acidify the rain through other activities. And also the plant that would basically ignore the cadmium is now being forced to drink it as part of the cocktail. And the plant becomes weak because even though it's getting the primary nutrients it's getting, it's not getting the micronutrients that it needs. So it becomes susceptible to disease. 
Well, one of the biggest diseases we get is funguses. They start attacking the plant. So now we need a fungicide. So then we put a fungicide on the crop. Now we kill the last remaining allies that we had in the soil, which were the fungal activity that was the last remaining component of, of the food web, and we compact the soil and we start to get an anaerobic condition in a hard pan because we're also tilling every year and we've got no life left in the soil whatsoever. So now pests detect that this plant is weak, even if it looks relatively healthy to our eyes, And they come in to do what pests do, and that is they first attack weak plants. So now we start having plagues of pests in our farm systems. So, well, there's a problem. So what's the profit to the problem? The profit to the problem is to make an insecticide. And we give this to the farmer who then sprays the crop with a pesticide that goes into the food that we're going to eat, and it kills the pests. But another thing happens. Since we've damaged the ecosystem so badly, nature sends in the reparative mechanism. So if you damage an ecosystem to the point where the things that are supposed to grow there can't grow there, but it hasn't been turned into complete desert yet, what can grow there? Uh, plants we generally call weeds. So the weeds come. Now the weeds are competing with the, with the, the, the agricultural production, which we can't have that. And the weed is actually adapted to the denuded condition we've created, and the plant isn't. So the weed can outcompete a plant that it shouldn't be able to outcompete. You, you think about it, weeds and corn should not even be an issue against each other. Unless you're talking about something like pigweed, amaranth, like any typical annual weed just should not be able to keep up with a corn stalk. It shouldn't, it shouldn't even matter, but it does because we've weakened the corn. So now we need an herbicide. Problem is, the herbicide will also kill the corn or the soy or whatever. So now we have to genetically modify. This is how we got here. And that's one reason we have so many chemicals in our food. We're forcing the plants to drink chemicals, and then we're pouring chemicals on the plants, and then we're eating it. What's your solution to this? I'm not going to give it to you. You just think about it. Now we got chemicals in our water. We've got a hundred reasons for that. One is all the shit I just said, because what do you think's in that topsoil that washes away every year into our watershed? <laughs> all those chemicals. We also have the, the contributions from fossil fuels and other waste streams and mining going into our water systems. What's your solution to this? Okay. Habitat loss. Well... If we're going out and taking grasslands and prairies and woodlands and mowing them flat, burning them off, whatever, and then putting in a monocrop, there's your habitat loss. For all the talk of since we built a city here, we have habitat loss. In a lot of ways, a lot of the native wildlife does well in our suburbs, as long as we don't intentionally kill it. If you think about things like raccoons and squirrels and possums and skunks, they live right in our, our, our suburbs. And they live well there because suburbs are edge environments. In fact, we maximize edge in the suburbs. Everybody has their own little place. They have their fence lines. That's a whole edge. We plant trees. We have woodlots. We have parks. Suburbs are not a great idea as a whole, but in, if, if properly done, you would actually have incredibly diverse from a wildlife And, and, and plant life species environment in our... We already do, and we could have even more. 
The suburbs and the cities have nowhere near the impact on the loss of habitat that agriculture does. It's our biggest problem for habitat loss. And then we also take way too much water because the, the, the soil can't hold water like it used to in those agricultural systems. And the thing that most affects the diversity and the stability and the health of an ecosystem is how well it has access to water. So when we, we cut down enough trees in the mountains that we literally watch streams and rivers stop flowing and go dry, we have massive habitat loss, even if we don't do anything with the place that stream used to go through, if we leave it alone. It was dependent on that stream that flowed through, directly and indirectly, because any place that has streams flowing through, even a place that's really a dryish place that doesn't have a lot of lush vegetation, in that bottom land, you'll always see lots of trees, bushes, shrubs, and vines, and they kind of come out from that edge because there's a weeping into the soil. And there's a humidity rise. And then those plants absorbing that excess water contribute to rainfall through transpiration through their leaves. So we have massive habitat loss and climate change affected by the way that we're doing things. What's your solution to that? How about a reliance on fossil fuels? Let's say that you don't think fossil fuels cause any pollution whatsoever. I don't agree with you. But let's say that you, you believe that. Does it make sense, if we don't have to, for us to spend as much energy as we do to extract these fuels, to centralize their distribution, and then to sell them to people if we don't have to? At least at the level that we do. Wouldn't it be better if we used like half the fossil fuel that we use today? For everybody. Not because we were forced to, but because we didn't need it. Wouldn't that mean what we have would last longer, the pollution that is? Because there is pollution created from fossil fuels. Just because I'm not losing my mind about oh, CO2, the, 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 the air that you exhale, doesn't mean that I think it's all made from sunshine and rainbows and unicorn farts. Right? I grew up in the coal region. I know what coal mining does to a location. It is horrible. I have seen the damage done when oil is extracted, especially in a, a, a non-conscious manner. Probably the cleanest fossil fuel we have is natural gas, and it is not without its problems. So we have negative effects of the reliance on fossil fuels. And not just a reliance, but an extreme reliance. Because we're relying on fossil fuels in a centralized energy distribution system, what happens when there's a, I don't know, a, a really bad cold front hits Texas and you have 4 million Texans without power? And we have probably a trillion dollars worth of damage overall. Maybe it would be better if we didn't have that. What about pollution in general? If you don't think we have a problem with pollution, just take a drive down the average highway and look at the side of it. Go to a landfill. See what we're doing. Look at the massive amount of waste that we produce and how much goes into just dealing with our waste. And I mean physical waste that we think of like garbage we throw away and our, our own shit and piss, which are full of nutrient and could be actually growing better ecosystems. Instead, we have giant plants that sort of clean the water, but not really, and then dump it back into our water systems that we use to irrigate our crops, and then we wonder about how we got all these chemicals in our food. Not to mention all the chemicals we're consuming, and even if we clean the water, 
to the standpoint where it's quote-unquote safe to drink from our sewage system, the chemicals we do not remove. So how would you solve the problem of pollution in general? Water, terrestrial, etc., air pollution. What solutions can you see to this? They come from a permaculture perspective. How about lifestyle illnesses? You know, you talk about how many people are going to die because of COVID. About 600 to 700,000 people will die of complications directly related to type 2 diabetes every year. And that number will continue to rise. COVID will pass because every disease like it ever has passed. We have a significant amount of innate immunity and ability to deal with diseases humans, and specifically this one. This is not a uniquely deadly disease in the history of humanity. It is not in the top 20 of deadly diseases in the history of humanity. I'm sorry, it isn't. But our deaths due to type 2 diabetes alone exceed it and will continue to grow unless we change something. And it's, there's about an equal number of diseases that aren't directly attributed to type 2 diabetes that one way or another are attributed to just obesity as a whole. We have an explosion of autoimmune diseases in our society today. This makes no sense. And science tries to say, well, you know, all it is is we didn't used to have a name for this or we got better at diagnosing it. And no, the answer to that is bullshit. Because we can look back at the, the records of medical scientists and researchers of the past, and even if they didn't have a name for something, they documented symptoms. And we can look back and go, oh, this was a description of lupus, right? This was a, this was a, a symptom of this other autoimmune disease, whatever, right? We can tell, including things like autism, we can tell. We can tell about roughly what the percentage of people with autism was, even though we didn't d diagnose it all in the past. And we know it's exploded. We know it's exploded. And I, I know you might be like, autism is not a lifestyle illness. It may or may not be, in my opinion. I think we can have autism that is genetic and innate to that individual. And we have a spectrum of autism. I grew up with what was called not long ago Asperger's. Back when I was a kid, it wasn't called anything. Thank God, because no one helped me, so I ended up okay. Um, now they just call Asperger's part of the autism spectrum disorder. So I, I think I was likely not hugely impacted by my diet in that, but I don't know. I drank a lot of Cokes and shit when I was a kid. I, you know, I was a kid in the 80s. We didn't even think about that stuff back then. I think we ate less junk, but we didn't worry about the junk we ate at all. So I think we can have varying degrees, but I, I have seen, flat out seen, proof that children who are diagnosed with, with autism, and, and, and basically doctors said there is nothing that can be done. And with dietary changes, watch that child become what we would think of as a normal, healthy, happy child. I've seen it documented. You can't tell me it doesn't happen. So I would put at least some of it into lifestyle diseases. But most of the inflammatory autoimmune-based diseases that are in epidemic proportions today, they are not genetic. They are lifestyle, even if they have their roots in genetics. So I think you can have a, a, a situation where... A person has a predisposition genetically to a certain type of inflammatory, autoimmune, etc. disorder. But if they eat well and if they have a good life, they'll never express it. Where you can have another person that eats the same garbage and they won't ever express it and only the person had the predisposition will, if that makes sense. How would you address this? You know, eating less processed food? 
Who does that benefit and who does it harm? Think about in every one of these, when you start thinking about obvious solutions, who benefits, and in most instances, who benefits is people in general, us, but it will harm the people that profit off of permanent problems. Technocrats, oligarchs, politicians. Okay. What about a lack of affordable housing? Kind of I started off mentioning that, alluding to the fact that we talk about it today. Think of wh why do we have a lack of affordable housing? Does it really cost that much money to put in a dwelling that a human being and it's you know and, and the rest of its immediate family can live in? The answer is it doesn't. It doesn't have to. And we have the technology because it's centuries old to build housing that doesn't fall down on top of people's heads, right? that doesn't collapse, that actually lasts for centuries, that heats and cools itself. It's, it's what we call reactive housing. When it gets cold outside, the house collects more heat and radiates more heat in inside. And when it gets hot outside, the house cools itself. Very simple, low-energy systems that do this. We have the technology to do it. The number one reason we can't do it is due to regulations of the housing industry and regulations of the finance industry through which people buy their houses. You can build a house that is a beautiful home that anybody would love to have that has almost no electric bill whatsoever that, that grow the house itself is part of the food production systems. And you know what the big problem is? You can't sell it because the person you're trying to sell it to can't afford it because it's worth too much money for them to have the money in their back pocket to buy it. But the regulations in the financing industry are such that you can't get a mortgage against it, even if the house is there legally. I was un unable to buy a house one time. I was in love with the house. It was seven and a half acres. Its kitchen was probably worth more money than half my house. It was beautiful. And if I had moved there instead of here where I'm at, it's about an hour from here. I'd probably have four or five ponds on the land. It was gorgeous, deep, black prairie land clay soils. I loved everything about it. It was in our price range. In fact, I wondered why the price was so low. So we wanted to make an offer on it. But it was round. It, was, it wasn't even like, you know, an earth-sheltered home or an earth ship or something. It was just a geodesic dome structure. And we could not get an appraiser to appraise it as a comparable house so that we could get a lender to loan against it. Now, the city had no problem assessing a very high value to it so they could tax it. So the city was more than happy to say, this house is worth $350,000. The guy couldn't sell it for two, and they were probably, by the way, the city was probably right But the guy couldn't sell it for $240,000 because nobody could get a mortgage against it. Now, if that could happen to a house that's that, and this is a 4,000 square foot house that probably would have survived, and part of why I was interested in it, a direct hit from a tornado. If that house can't be sold, and probably was hell and high water to even build, what does that say about simple, small structures that would give people a good place to start? What does that say about a person being able to say, you know what? I like this multi-generational approach. I'm going to go find myself two, four acres. I'm going to put a little house on it. The house will grow with my family over time, like it used to. And then when my kids grow up, 
we'll just put another little dwelling on the property for them. And they can start their life with their family there. And when I die, they can move into my house and their kids will take their house. And for 20 or 30 generations, we'll live here. And this house and, and the housing on it and the land will all kind of merge together. And when the family gets too big, to just go do that again and we'll have the knowledge and the ability to do that. Wouldn't that be great for affordable housing? Who does that hurt? Who does it benefit? If you start looking at this, you're going you're gonna to find... Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save this for the end, but you should right now have a word we use all the time when we talk about technology and banking. Two words made from the same word that you should be able to think of right now that almost all the solutions are one and all of the status quo... And instead of solving the problem, maintaining the problem are the other. Can you think of it? Well, we'll find out when we get to the end here. So I have some questions for you now. In any instance that we just discussed, can you tell me how politicians or billionaires benefit from, the real, from real solutions to these problems? Is there any benefit to a politician or a billionaire if we solve the affordable housing problem? problem from a standpoint of we create housing that people can actually afford, that people stay in and don't go somewhere else and live multi-generations. And when they do expand, they only expand because the family got big enough they needed to expand. Can you think of how, how does any solution that you've come up with, not one I've given you, how does any solution that you've come up actually help billionaires? How does it help technocrats? How does it help oligarchs? How does it help politicians? How does it benefit a politician if you produce half of what you need for your own family? How does it help them get more power? How does it help them justify more of the legislation that they wish to pass? If you solve any problem, how is it of benefit to politicians? The answer is it isn't. How does it benefit billionaires? In most cases, it isn't. How about this? If we have solutions to these issues that are proven solutions, and we do, why are they not being used? Boy, that relates to the last question, doesn't it? I would say primarily the main reason we do not enact actual solutions, and instead we sustain problems. Instead of sustainable solutions, we sustain problems. Is, be is precisely that, because it doesn't benefit the parasitic class, and it doesn't benefit the predatory class for those problems to be solved. And, and I'm not calling people on welfare the parasitic class. To me, I think most people on welfare are victims of the parasitic class. The parasitic class is the politicians and the bureaucrats. The predatory class is the billionaires and gazillionaires, right? The people that, like I talked about earlier this week, there is a point where if you have a certain amount of money and things, if you want any more at all, You are a sociopath. I, I guarantee you, if you listen to this show regularly, you are a person that if I started putting suitcases of a million dollars in each suitcase in front of you and giving it to you, and you knew it was real, there was a point where you'd say, I don't want any more. I don't want any, I, even if I'm going to give away half of it, I don't want the, the burden of deciding who to give this to anymore. Go give this to somebody else. Well, you, the person that is that person, 
benefits from sustainable solutions. The person that says, I want more, keep it coming. Yeah, and I want more. They benefit from sustainable problems. You see how simple it is to understand? And I defy anybody with logic and reason to explain to me how my logic's flawed there. That if we solve a problem, it is not beneficial to the billionaire class, and it is not beneficial to the political class. It is never to their benefit for a problem to be solved, only for the problem to be sustained. For the, the, the problem to be addressed sufficiently, that it doesn't destroy the entire thing, but yet it's still there, so their solution is still necessary. Right? And now let's get specific with some questions. What do multi-generational homesteads do to a housing market? I mean, you realize that there's, there's a multi-trillion dollar market in, in, in building new houses. Right? And a shitload of the money in there is things that are required that are not necessary. There's required and necessary are different words. Required means some authority says you must do this thing. Necessary means if you don't do this thing, bad shit will happen. Like the house will fall down on your head. So where I live, I have no building codes. None. Zero. Here's a classic example of this. We had some work done in the kitchen, and it involved doing some movement of some of the plumbing and all. The guy said, well, I'm going to have to do this thing and put this pipe, this breather pipe, you know. And it's going to go, it's going to add like 300 bucks to the project. Why? It's for the drain of the sink. The sink's been there since 1978. It drains just fine. We're not moving the sink. Yeah, I know. Then why do you need to do this? Because it's the code. What code? Oh, the Tarrant County code. Or not Tarrant County, uh, Fort Worth City code. Like, then you don't have to do it here. He goes, what do you mean? The guy didn't know. I said, we have no codes here. We're unincorporated. He goes, oh, then you don't need that. I'm like, so you're saying that, like, nothing bad will happen if we don't do this. Oh, yeah, no, like, totally nothing. There's no reason that you have to do this whatsoever other than they said so. See, that's a requirement. That's not a need. A requirement and need are different. Now, We needed a pipe that came out the bottom of the sink that took the water to the septic, otherwise you'd flood the house. That's a need. So we have, in many instances, requirements that are supposedly for environmental purposes that do absolutely nothing to benefit the environment, but they sure benefit the people that manufacture them or the people that install them. And hence those people, since we're talking about trillion-dollar industries, have lobbyists who go explain to your congressmen and your senators why they need these regulations to help sustain the problem. Who's that benefit? And what happens when we solve those problems by eliminating those requirements? Well, number one, all those industries suffer. But then the overall housing market. If people buy a house and stay there, what happens to the housing market? From a standpoint of construction, new builds, etc. What happens if you just stop moving people every five years to new housing to the real estate market? You don't think those guys have, have freaking lobbyists? Do you think there's any interest in creating housing stability when so much money is made out of housing instability? Why are we taking a house that's being, you know, upgraded, remodeled? And requiring things to be done in that house that were never done. The house has been there a hundred years. 
the house was there 100 years. Guy goes in and starts doing a remodeling. Inspector comes. Uh, you got to get rid of that window. Why? you got too many windows on that side of the house. That's a real thing, by the way. You have too many windows on that side of the house. Windows been there 100 years. Not a problem. Now it's a problem. What happens to all these people with all these jobs in government, these cushy jobs in government, running around and telling people what to do if you create housing stability, where if somebody wants to freaking remodel their house, they just remodel their house the way that I do? What if everybody lived in a place like mine, where they can do whatever they want with their house? Is my house falling on my head? When it was built in 1978, which was one of the shittiest times to build a house, so every shortcut was taken, my house isn't falling down. I haven't done anything to my house that's damaged it for myself. Why? Because it's in my self-interest for my house not to fall on my head. What happens to these industries if people start building housing that takes care of itself and takes care of them and doesn't need these people? Okay. What effect does good health have on a multi-trillion dollar medical and pharmaceutical market? I'm not being facetious here at all. I am asking you a serious question. The health of this country is low. It really is. It's one of the reasons that we got hit as hard as we did with something as mild as COVID in reality to the human condition. Because we have people with massive vitamin D deficiencies, for one. People whose immune systems are either suppressed or have been triggered into over-response. That's what an autoimmune disorder is. And we have people that are immensely obese. I mean immensely. We're not talking about people carrying a few extra pounds around their midsection. We're talking about people that have handicapped placards on their cars simply because they're fat. We're talking about people who get fungal diseases in folds on their arm because it's so humid in there because they're that fat. When I was a kid, in any school you probably had a fat kid. If you're my age or older, I bet you can think back and you're like, eh, I remember high school, you know, Joey or Jason was the fat kid, right? And you had one or two fat kids in a big school. Now most of the kids are fat. If you're fat when you're 16, what are you going to look like when you're 60? Seriously. And people are like, well, you shouldn't, you know, attack people for being fat. I'm not attacking the person. I'm attacking the problem. So you actually want to correct the problem. When we are shoving into children... Massive amounts of fructose, which is liver is a liver toxin, by the way, friends, and chemicals. We're going to have sick adults because you're already sick. If you start out sick as a kid, your adult life you're not going to get any better. Have you ever been out somewhere and you see two people that waddle around? I'm not even talking fat like I used to be. I'm talking like like they have to walk with their back, you know, their shoulders back. To counterbalance their gut. They have fat that comes over the elbow, right? I mean, like, that's where you've really gone, right? When you have fat that goes over your elbow, you've really gone well past what is healthy. I'm sorry. This healthy at any size argument is stupid, all right? And you see those people follow this, and you realize they have some kids with them. And the kids aren't, like, super overweight, but they're pudgy. And they're young, they're like five, six years old, and they're pudgy. Their fingers are starting to get sausage-like, etc. You know, they, they could, in a, in a couple weeks to a couple months of eating right, that kid could be a healthy, energetic kid with a great future. But they're not, and it's not going to happen. Have you ever looked at that and thought, geez, those kids have no chance? 
Be honest with yourself. Have you ever felt that way? Like, oh, that kid has no chance. How's this kid? And then you see, have you ever seen someone, you know, through their social media that realizes it's like, I'm a fat ass? And they're like, I don't want to be a fat ass no more. And they start eating well. And they start putting themselves on a diet, but they still let their kids eat all the garbage and the kids are fat and the, the, the parent loses weight and they are parenting fat kids because, well, the kids still have to have their Twinkies and their Ho-Hos and their cookies. How is this going to benefit the people who are sick or the people paying for the people who are sick? It isn't. But do you think it benefits the pharmaceutical industry when they have drugs that enable this behavior? There's a drug they can give you. If you have type 2 diabetes, there are people who have type 2 diabetes strictly because they're obese. And they get to a point where their body literally can't make any more fat cells. So not only can they not deal with their insulin issues and their sugar issues, they can't make more fat. They literally can't make any more. They filled up all their fat cells and they can't make any more. There's a finite limit to how many fat cells your body can make. There's a drug, I can't remember what it's called, it actually gives you the ability to make more fat cells. And we give this drug to people. And it saves their life. Well, it, pro, it, 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 it delays their death. Because they can make more fat cells to store more fat so they can continue their behavior. We have people who a simple dietary change would correct their type 2 diabetes and instead we give them insulin. And then we say the cost of insulin is too high. Who benefits if we have a healthy society? Do politicians benefit from a society that is generally healthy? Do billionaires benefit from a society that's generally healthy? No, they benefit from selling you gadgets and gizmos and diet pills and all this other shit as long as people are fat. The pharmaceutical industries do not make money off of curing people. They make money off of treating people. So we know that it does not help a multi-trillion dollar industry for people to be healthy. What benefits them is for people to be sick, but not die too fast. I'm not, I'm not kidding. What does, what effect does a zero waste society or a minimal waste society have on the waste management industry? This is an interesting one. Do you know what the global value of the waste management industry is. What is what is garbage worth on a global scale? It's staggering. It's more than the budget of the United States of America was just 10 years ago for our annual budget. It's 2.3 trillion dollars. Let me say that again. The value of garbage in our society is 2.3 trillion dollars. We have plastic garbage reefs floating around in our oceans, contaminating our oceans and the food and the fish and the ocean products we consume. But it's worth $2.3 trillion to the people that haul it away, that bury it, and that dump it. $2.3 trillion. The entire Bitcoin market is a trillion dollars. 2.7 times every Bitcoin that exists in the world in waste disposal. So, do you think maybe some people might be opposed to zero waste? Let me tell you a couple little anecdotes to this. A few years ago, I was working with a guy named John Bush. Not the John Bush that I work with with the, the Goose Group. Different John Bush. 
and uh, local to this area. But they were working where the other John Bush lives in Austin. They were trying to put in a facility that was basically going to take waste and turn it into fuel and turn it into compost and generate power and, and do all these wonderful things. And they were working with the Austin City Council, and they were getting very close to it. One of the groups that was able to really put the kibosh on it was the local waste management lobby. And so as this, like, they were pretty good at what they did, this group that John was working with. And John was part of this other John. And I even went and I helped them work on, like, their clothes and their pitch to the council. That's what I got involved in. I hate consulting, but I did it because it was really, really worthy. And he told me eventually that the reason that it died was the waste management people. They had a lot of power. And they tried talking to them, and they said, you, you, you understand here. You're not going to lose your jobs, and you're not going to lose your business. Because what they were doing wasn't going to zero waste. It was using the waste. So all you're going to do is all your trucks and shit, when you pick the waste up, instead of taking it to the dump, you're going to take it to our facility. That's it. It's not going to hurt you. And they told them, almost mafia-like, we have no interest in this, and you don't need to be here. And this makes me think of where occasionally Hollywood leaks the truth. And it is a very old movie from the 80s that Rodney Dangerfield was in. It was called Back to School. I'm sure if it ever makes a resurgence of popularity, the cancel culture will go get this one for totally different reasons. But it's totally worth watching. It's some adult content. It's not for young kids. I'd say mid-teenagers and up are fine. You watch it first. You decide your own kids. But the idea is he's this self-made millionaire from a clothing line. Uh, Thornton Mellon's Tall and Fat Store, right? And um, his kid's having trouble in college, so he decides, I'm going to go to college with my son. And it's a whole romp, and it's crazy. It's an 80s movie. It's a classic 80s movie. But he takes college courses at this college. He's never been to college. He's a self-made high school dropout type that built this, this empire up. And he's taking his class with one of the antagonists in the show, who's this uh, kind of British refined attitude and he's an economics and, and, and business you know professor and he says we're going to build this factory we're going to make widgets and, and, and Rodney's character is like yeah, Thornton what the hell is a widget and eventually he says that, you know we're building radios he goes ah, you can't do that the Japs will cut your throat on the, you know and, and they start going through this whole thing and he's just con and like the kids are writing down what Thornton's saying and he's like finally he shuts him up he says well we're just going to do widgets then right and it stops him And he says, well, now here's, we're going to need money, and we're going to need money for building and construction. And he's like, you know, why don't you lease it? Because it's better to lease it than to own the building, because then you can write off versus depreciation, you know. And, and it just keeps back and forth. But when he gets done and he's like, well, this is all the budget that you're going to need to work up for your project. And Thornton's like, hey, you know, you left a lot out. And he's like, you know, the building inspector, he's going to need to be greased. And like he starts talking about how all the officials are going to have to bribe. And he says... This is where it comes to the waste management thing. He says, and the waste management guys, I don't know if you know the guys that run that, but they're not the kind of guys you just get along with. He's talking about how the waste management society is basically the legitimate business of the modern mafia family. And it is. To a large degree, it is. And that truth comes out there. And that's what happened to John and his people in Austin. They had the whole project shut down due to the power of the waste management industry, because they're not just worried about their trucks picking the garbage up. There's money in a landfill, too. It's all connected. They don't want a solution because it's not profitable. 
So who benefits if we have a zero-waste or low-waste society? And what effect does it have on a $2.3 trillion dollar industry? And do you think some people in a $2.3 trillion dollar industry might be defensive of it? Do you think? What effect does grid independence have on a multi-trillion dollar energy industry? You know, we always talk about how, uh, Exxon, it's Exxon, and, and it's Chevron, and it's you know, uh, uh, British Petroleum, and that's, that's why we have all this, this CO2. I, I'm going to tell you, they're, they're way more concerned as an energy industry about making sure you stay plugged into something that they're doing than they are about what they do it with. Exxon's happy to make green energy as long as you keep paying them for it. Grid independence, even partial grid independence, is very dangerous to people that want power. We'll say some thoughts on that for a second. What effect does 50% of homegrown food made with compost have on a chemical and fertilizer industry? You're another multi-trillion dollar industry. If, if half the people grew half their food, what happens to that industry? It, it, it declines. And you live in a society where only growth will do, which is one of the key problems that we have. If you ran a small business and you made about $150,000 a year, you got to actually keep and spend, and that was enough to live really well on. And you kept making about the same money for 20 or 30 years until you sold the business or handed it down or retired. You'd be fine. You would, you know, one, you'd be like, whatever. I don't care. Right? You know, maybe a little growth here and there to, to sustain inflation. But overall, you don't need to grow once you have what you need. It's not just greed and psychopathy that requires growth. Our entire system is predicated upon growth. A company that does not grow is punished and is destroyed. You must grow at all costs. You must have growth. Must have growth. It's all about growth. So if you can cause an industry to decline at all, it's akin to a death sentence for a huge segment of that industry. What benefit is there to Monsanto, now owned by Bayer, if we produce half our own food without using any of their chemicals at all? It's of no benefit. It hurts them significantly. So now what I want to kind of do is sum this all up. And remember that word I said? Have you noticed through this, did you get the right answer when I asked the question earlier, that all of their solutions, their sustainable problems, right, have you noticed that they are all centralized solutions? They all revolve around a centralization of materials and goods and power. And that all of the solutions that you've likely come up with in your head as we go through this are decentralized. In other words, when I buy power from the grid, the power comes from a centralized system that I have to pay into in order to receive the power. But if I produce my own energy here, I'm not tied into that, and therefore my solution is decentralized. When I buy food from the food industry, not the guy down the street who raises cattle that I buy my beef from, um, well, what happens then? I'm buying from a centralized solution. But when I produce my own food in my own backyard, it's decentralized. If I want to fix any of these problems on a meaningful level, 
the biggest portion, not all of the things need to be decentralized. There is some benefit from centralization of some components of some things. But if everything's predicated on growth, right, I have to grow, 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 then I have to constantly agitate the problem and expand the solution to the point of total dependence. And as soon as people begin to move in the other direction, I have to find reasons to keep them from doing it. And the easiest thing to do once I've created this kind of conglomerate is to use the force of government to regulate away the potential solution. And that's the world we live in. And that's why they have no interest in actual solutions to real environmental problems. Because if you solve the problem, you're no longer necessary. The reason they love the idea of climate change based on CO2 is it's a never-ending you know, war. It's, like a, it's an open-ended war that they can justify forever. Well, if we let, you know, even if everything gets, gets great, well, if we go back to the way things were, remember how it was? And once everybody that remembers how it was is dead, it's however they say it was. Where if you actually solve the problem in a way that empowers the person who was dealing with the problem, who actually has the problem, well, that's, that's no good for you. That's no good for you. So, again, we need sustainable problems not regenerative solutions, to keep the small number of people that are in power and hold power over us where they are, and to keep you subservient to them. Why do we destroy the Native Americans? Why do we completely wipe them out? Why do we kill their primary food source off to starve them? Why do we round them up and put them on reservations? And why did we make sure the land that we gave them was as depleted and denuded as possible. Why didn't we give them any good land as reservations? I mean, we gave them shit land. Why? It's not because we needed all the good land. There's still a lot of good land that no one's on. It was because we wanted to bring them in to subservience. We wanted them to cow down before us. We wanted them to accept the new order of North America. We wanted them to respect the great chief in Washington. Right? We wanted them to fall in line. And the way you get people to fall in line to government is you get them to believe that they need government. And the primary thing that they need government for is security. And the more you get people to rely on a government for security, the more you can get government to rely people to rely on government for security. As soon as they give up one thing, it's easy to get them to give up the next. And you can get them to a point where if you centralize enough power, they become wholly dependent upon you, at least in their minds. How do you do that to a people that don't need you? The reason we did this to the Native Americans is we had nothing to offer them. We had nothing to offer them to get them to come in and cow down to us. We'll provide you security. For what? For what? We defend our tribe. As far as the other, I mean, the tribes had remarkable peace between them. Now, I'm not saying there were no conflicts, but wars among the tribes were very short-lived because when you fought a war in a society like that, you probably knew all the people that died, at least from your side. War is amazingly self-limited when the people voting for war are the people who have to fight it. You can't just send... 
your soldiers off to some distant land to fight it for you and wave a flag like it's a sporting match. That's when war became a sustainable problem, when we started being able to export the problem and have a class of people fight it instead of every, it being everybody's problem. That's when we came up with sustainable warfare and all of the horrors that have come from it over centuries and millennia. Read a history book. You'll see it's true. Yeah, we had nothing to offer them. Now apply that to us today. The less that they have to offer us in the ways of security, because food is security, water is security, health is security. You understand? It's all security. It's all about security. People move to cities for what reason? Security. Well, I went there because there's a job opportunity. That would be financial security. I went there because they have more stuff. That would be resource security. I went there because I couldn't afford to live where I was living anymore, and I had the opportunity. That's security. Even though there's a lack of security in parts of the city because of dangerous and criminal activity, overall people make decisions based mostly on the security of their lives and their lifestyles. And if people can see to most of those, the, the more people can see to that themselves, the less people in power have to offer. So the less they are willing to negotiate. If you came to me and, and said, hey, Jack, um, I'd kind of like to hang out on your property for a while and, and set up a tent and live there. And I said, okay, well, here's what you're going to have to do. Every day you're going to come inside and clean out the dirt from under my toenails. How desperate do you have to be to take the deal? Right? I know it sounds gross, but I mean, really, you have to be really desperate. If you have any other option, you're probably not taking that one. But isn't there a place where some people would take that option? Isn't there a place where some people would, if they have nothing else? The less you have that you can do for yourself, the more you will capitulate yourself to others. So if we solve these problems, humanity benefits. But the people in power don't. And you have to understand. I, I know it's like maybe I sound like a broken record this week. But God, you got to understand. You've got to understand. These people are psychopaths. They're sociopaths. There's no reason for a 70-year-old person to want to get reelected into political office. They've done it. They've spent their whole life in politics. They've been in politics. They went to college. They got into politics in their 20s. They've been in politics for 50 years. They've been setting policy and controlling things for 50 years. They fixed nothing. They can't look back and say, I fixed this. They, they will in a, in a speech. But if you, if you put them on a lie detector and go, did you fix anything? They're going to say no or they're going to fail. And they want power. They want more power. Or they want to sustain the power they have. When you got Schumer's and Pelosi's and McConnell's, I'll go on both sides of the aisle here, right? Just the first names that speak to me. All these friggin' people. They're well past retirement age. Been in politics, never did anything else in their lives. And they want to stay in office or they want to move up in office and want more power. It's sociopathic behavior. You have somebody worth $5 billion, $6 billion, $7 billion that wants more money. It's sociopathic behavior. These people become the ruling class because the most important thing to them is to become the ruling class. You find that people tend to become whatever they decide is most important to them, including drug addicts. 
Drug addicts become drug addicts because they become convinced that the next high is the most important thing to them. Wealthy people, there's plenty of great wealthy people, by the way, good-hearted, generous, wealthy people. I'm not opposed to wealth. But wealthy people become wealthy because they decide becoming wealthy is important to them. People that are known as generous become known as generous because they decide being generous is important to them. People that become really healthy in spite of all the problems we have decide that being healthy is important to them. So people that become powerful become powerful because they decide that becoming powerful is important to them. And people that become not wealthy, but incredibly wealthy, and yet still seek more wealth, are chasing the same thing the political class is. They're just using a different means to attain it. It's power. We do most of what we do as a species for security. I want to make sure I can feed my kids and put a roof over their head. That is security. Understanding our desire for security, the people that, it, that want power leverage your desire for your security to advance their own power. And they will never, ever benefit from you having permanent solutions to your desire for security. Food, water, shelter, energy, etc. So you have to build it yourself. I know we didn't talk a lot about solutions today, but there should be hundreds of solutions running through your mind. And here's the good news. In most cases, just do it. Find where you can do it or do it even where you're not supposed to. If Brad Lancaster can get out a concrete saw on Sunday afternoons or Sunday mornings and cut out curbs and transform an entire neighborhood in Tucson, Arizona through basic concepts of water harvesting, what can you do? What can you do? With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you want to help us in the work that we do, you can do your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, if you start there, you help support us and the work that we do. The item of the day today from tspaz.com is Lifeguard Aquatics Threaded Bulkheads and Slip Bulkheads. I have links to both of them. Threaded means you put a little adapter inside them, like a little, it's got a little uh, male-to-female screw attachment type thing. And slip is you just take the pipe and slam it in there, which I actually prefer. I love these bulkheads. So what, a, what is a bulkhead for those that don't know? Well, if we have a tank that holds water, and I want water to come out of the tank, but I don't want her to just pour out of the tank, So I need to put a penetration in it. A bulkhead is the thing that I drill a hole in the side of the tank, put the bulkhead through and screw it on, and it lets water through a pipe, but it doesn't leak. That's a bulkhead. At least in this ex example, that's what a bulkhead is. And uh, they're available half-inch, three-quarter, one-inch, one-and-a-half, and the Lifeguard Aquatic ones are incredibly affordable. They're about half the price of a lot of competing products. If you're doing aquaponics, hydroponics, or aquatic projects, These are a great thing. Take a look at my video that goes along with the write-up today. And if you're working on these things, um, I'm just going to say that this is the time of year that everybody kind of starts doing it. And I have noticed over the years that they tend to lack inventory about a month from now. So if you have projects planned, don't go stocking up on them like you do with your beans, bulls, and band-aids, right? But if you have a project planned, sit down, map it out, determine what you need, and go ahead and, like, especially like PVC adapters that are reducers, expanders, etc., uh, and, and bulkheads of certain sizes, um, they tend to dry up for a little bit in the spring. I'm just saying because that's when everybody decides to do their projects. So if you're going to do something this year, I might get ahead of the curve on it a little bit. Just ordered some myself for some projects we're going to be doing at the workshop this March, and that's what made me bring them around today. The other thing you can do to help support this show is join the Member Support Brigade. 
So I believe that my solution should actually be good solutions for you instead of me, right? And I should benefit from providing a solution rather than sustaining a problem. So my solution is, what if you could pay me a membership fee and then you saved enough money to more than cover the membership fee in buying things that you're probably going to buy anyway this year? That's how the MSB works. So I have all these discounts that I've negotiated for you. 10% here, 5% there. It kind of adds up. And by the end of the year, you'll find, you know, with buying seeds and plants and fertility aids and, you know, storable goods and stuff like that, that if you use my discounts, you get your money back. Well, that's not sustainable. That's regenerative, especially if you get more back than you put in. That's the definition of regenerative. So I'd say the MSB is a regenerative product. Because if you can put 50 bucks a year in and get 100 bucks a year out, you'll do much better that way, right? You, that's money you didn't have. And you support the show that you listen to. So just consider becoming a member today. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. Let's talk about our song of the day today. A little humor for you um, as to why you didn't get to hear this song yesterday. Because I was excited to play this for you yesterday. Yesterday I ran a rewind of the Masada Ayub interview on the, the aftermath of lethal, lethal force and being prepared as an armed citizen to defend yourself if you ever have to use lethal force in a court of law and what to do and what not to do, how to stay out of prison. Uh, even when you're right, saying or doing the wrong things after the fact can end up with you in prison. Um, I did that show because my guest yesterday was a flake. And so I get ready to have this person on, and it took like an extra 15 minutes to get him on the air. Finally get him on the air. Get ready to start the interview. And I'm like, okay, it'll be a pause and I'll introduce you. And all of a sudden, I st it sounds like when I talk about somebody angry typing on a keyboard, like they're just, he's just slamming the shit out of his keyboard doing work. Well, I'm about to introduce him. And I said, when you stop effing around with your keyboard, I'll introduce you. He said, what? I don't know what you're talking about. I said, I hear you slamming on your keyboard. As soon as you stop, I'll introduce you. So there's quiet. I'm like, I Give a few seconds. This gives me a break in the audio so I can edit out that first part of the conversation. All of a sudden, he's gone. He ran away. I upset him. He said, didn't roll that way. Whatever. It's, it's sad. And it, make, it fits in with this song. This song is by Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, which I'd never heard of. And it's called Last of My Kind. And sometimes I feel like the last of my kind. Like to be told, hey, quit jacking around with that so we can get going with this was too much. And sometimes I feel like just basic mental toughness is lacking in the world. Not really what this song's about, though. This song is about how this, basically a country boy goes to the city. He's mistreated in college. His buddies get him high and leave him, leave him high and dry in the city. Laugh at him. No matter where he goes, he just doesn't fit in. It just isn't like home. And he starts feeling like I think all of us do in this world sometimes, last of our kind. But we're not. We're not. I know that from the workshops we do. Because the reason people come back over and over and over again isn't me. It's all the other people. People feel like, wow, I'm not alone. And I think when you feel like you're the last of your kind, you can't help but feel lonely. People that really care about what's really important in the world are actually the majority. We've just been confused, silenced, and trained into obedience. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Couldn't be happy in the city at night. You 
can't see the stars from neon light. Sidewalks dirty and the river's worse. Underground trains all run in reverse. Nobody here can dance like me. Everybody clapping on the one and the three of mine. Last of my kind. Am I? Last of my kind. So many people with so much to do. Winter's so cold, my hands turn blue. Old men sleeping on the filthy ground. They spend the whole day just walking around. Nobody else here seems to care. They walk right past them like they ain't even there. Am I? Last of my Am I last of my kind? Daddy said the river would always lead me home, but the river can't take me back in time. And Daddy's dead and gone. And the family farm's a parking lot for Walton's five and dime. Am I last of my kind? Am I? Last of my kind. I tried to go to college, but I didn't belong. Everything I said was either funny or wrong. Laughed in my boots, laughed in my jeans, laughed when they gave me amphetamine. Left me alone in a bad part of town. Thirty-six hours to come back down in my last of my kind. Am I last of my Mama says God won't give you too much to bear. Might be true in Arkansas, but I'm a long, long way from there. And that whole world's an old and faded picture in my mind. Am I the last of my kind? Am I the last of my kind? Am I? Last of my kind. Am I? Last of my kind.